Erin Patterson, the Aussie woman who was accused of killing three people via a beef wellington, has pleaded not guilty. We have everything you need to know from Australia. For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Warning. This episode contains strong language, graphic content and references to sexual assault. Help is available. See the episode notes for details. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called The One He Never Forgot. It's by Stuff's Nadine Roberts, who joins me now. Hi, Nadine. Hi, Mike. So this is a story about two people. Firstly, a woman named Linda Gordon, who was murdered in a small town in South Otago in the early 90s. Uh, But it's also about a police officer who has a connection to that case. So maybe just set the scene for us first. What is the connection and what, what happens in this story? Yeah, well, this was a shocking murder, you know, and it's a small working class coal mining town in Kaitankata, and that's not far out of Balclutha. And I was at high school at the time when this happened in Balclutha. And uh, Alistair Dickey is a very, very well-known policeman who's now retired, and he'd been embedded in the community for some time and understood it really well. And he became involved in a really, really difficult decision on the night that Linda Gordon was murdered, as we'll find out. Okay, so he yeah has a connection to the the night that she died back in in 1993, and the story is called the one he never forgot. So without any spoilers, if you can. Elaborate, please. Yeah. So all I'll say at this point is that, you know, we've got to understand in 1993, uh, in the context of that situation, that uh, this was a rural uh, community with police stations quite far apart and not a lot of police officers. So when one incident happens, sometimes you have to pull out of another incident to attend it. Okay, I think that's enough. Let's get into it. Here is Nadine reading her story the one he never forgot. On the face of it, Sergeant Alistair Dickey had an easy choice to make. Attend a suspected armed incident or process a disqualified driver sitting in front of him. But it's never that simple, especially when the disqualified driver goes on to commit a brutal crime just hours later. It was a slick smear of blood on the gravel road that stopped the two teenagers. The pair were motorbiking near the small South Otago town of Kaitankata on a Sunday afternoon in 1993. Initially, they thought the blood was from a wild boar, so they dismissed it and carried on riding along the Kaitankata dump road. But on the way back, they saw the blood again, and one of them decided to investigate the long grass beside the road. The boy soon emerged, his face drained of colour, and told his mate he had just stood on a dead body. I looked down and saw a leg and a shoe, he would later tell police. The rest of her body was covered up by grass and sticks. The disfigured body was that of a young woman who looked like a broken doll, lying half-hidden under long grass. She was on her back, partially naked, with her black top pulled up, and her black trousers pulled down. Her thin body had been battered and gory injuries to her face made her unidentifiable. Her long coppery hair was soaked in blood 
and her scalp covered in deep lacerations, including a six centimetre long opening on the back of her skull. The teeth in her lower jaw were shattered, and the woman's porcelain skin was sullied by fist-sized blotches of violet-coloured bruises. The grass around the woman's body was rusty red from blood spatter, and a clump of her hair moved in the breeze on a piece of wire some distance from the body. Not far away, in Balclutha, Alistair Dickey had come off shift after a busy night and was at a barbecue when he got a call to say a body had been found at the Kaitankata dump. Dickey had started his policing career as a constable in South Otago in the late 1970s. Now a sergeant, he had not long returned to the area from Christchurch. Kaitankara was a working-class coal mining town. As the mines closed in the 70s and early 80s, the town had struggled with high unemployment and cheap housing that attracted lower socio-economic residents. By the early 90s, Dickey and other police officers found the town's unemployment rate and heavy drinking culture a recipe for trouble. They regularly dealt with intoxicated young hooligans on the town streets. Overnight burnouts, racing, cars being driven down the main street with someone on the bonnet, driving through burning hay bales, serious crashes, unruly parties and suspicious fires kept police busy. Often just one officer would attend call-outs with no backup. As Dickie saw it, the Bogans spent their nights causing grief and playing cat and mouse with the police. Being a small-town police officer required more than the usual diplomacy. Dickie had once played senior reserve rugby for Kaitankata, though his playing days were short-lived after he had to process half the team for drink driving. But in his time, he had earned the respect and support of the locals. He would need to draw on all of that to solve this murder, especially once he learned he had met the killer and the victim the night before. On the morning before he committed murder, Jason Dwayne Lilly, an unemployed 23-year-old from Kaitankata, drove himself and his mate to periodic detention in Balclutha in his distinctive yellow Anglia van. Lilly had moved to Kaitankata only a few months earlier. He stood out with a shaved head and eyebrows with lightning bolt tattoos, a common neo-Nazi symbol derived from the SS in Nazi Germany. His rap sheet stretched back to age 15 and had grown steadily more serious. Burglaries, driving offences and escaping custody turned into being caught with offensive weapons including knives. He had spent a significant amount of time in prison, including a stint over Christmas in 1992. His latest periodic detention was for receiving property, possessing a knife in a public place and possessing a syringe. After completing periodic detention at 3pm, Lily and his mate bought some beer and went back to the Kaitankata house Lily shared with his partner Kelly and their young daughter. About 5.30pm, Lily and another friend went to see a female friend who lived nearby. She described Lily as being in a really bad mood. At 7pm, Lily came back to his mate's home asking for $30 for parts but he intended to spend the money at the pub that evening. 24-year-old Linda Gordon, the woman he would kill, 
walked into the Bridge Tavern at around the same time. The pub was just a few streets from both Gordon's and Lily's homes. Gordon was staying in the town for a fortnight under an assumed name to put some distance between her and an ex-boyfriend. The man was also the father of her two-year-old daughter, Laura, who Gordon had left in Dunedin with her parents. Her ex had become intense, and Gordon felt she needed to stay away from the city until he calmed down. Close friend Josie Harris said Gordon was a confident, striking woman and a proud mum. She was popular and had the brains to achieve whatever she wanted. Gordon had recently completed a fashion course and was heading towards a career in the industry. While at the pub, Gordon borrowed $20 off a flatmate and had a glass of beer and a packet of chips. That flatmate last saw Gordon at 8pm when he left the Bridge Tavern. Gordon was standing across the road from the pub. He called out, see you later, and she waved back in acknowledgement. Gordon and Lily first encountered each other shortly afterwards. Lily would later say he came across Gordon hitchhiking not long after 8pm. The pair knew of each other, although Gordon's boyfriend, John O'Rogel, had warned her to be wary of Lily because he didn't trust him. Lily claimed Gordon told him she wanted to go to Balclutha to have a beer, so he offered her a lift. The pair then travelled together to the Rosebank Lodge in Balclutha, where they were seen at around 9pm. A witness who knew Lily said the pair sat in the Anglia van outside the pub for around 20 minutes before heading inside. An employee at the pub said Gordon bought a beer, and Lily, who she knew, seemed unusually quiet. Lily and Gordon didn't stay long and were seen soon after at the South Otago Hotel, where they played pool. Publican Keith Hill said they were quiet and didn't appear intoxicated. They then headed north to Milton and played more pool at the Milton Hotel. About 11.25pm, they had just started back to Balclutha when they were stopped by Sergeant Alastair Dickey. Dickey and other South Otago officers had been in Milton that night to help keep the peace. A series of drug-related search warrants in the town during the week had raised tensions. After a debrief at the Milton station, Dickey left to go back to Balclutha. As he turned onto the main street of Milton, he noticed a yellow van travelling south. There was nothing overtly suspicious about the vehicle, but Dickie had a feeling something wasn't right, so he pulled it over. When queried about his licence, the male driver initially lied. He told Dickie he was unlicensed, but not disqualified. Eventually he admitted the truth, but then lied again by claiming a friend had dropped him and his female passenger at the Milton pub and then left them stranded and unable to return to Kaitangata unless they drove. The driver seemed to Dickie to be alert and was speaking clearly and intelligently. He was cooperative and not displaying any signs of intoxication. Dickie was about to start an alcohol breath test when a constable from the nearby town of Lawrence, also helping in Milton that night, approached him. The constable said his wife had called him to say she thought someone had been shot in the town, which was 16 minutes away. She had heard what sounded like a gunshot, followed by screaming and banging. Dickie knew he had to respond. There was no police in the area, 
He told the driver of the van he would summon him for disqualified driving and asked if the female passenger could take the wheel. The driver said the woman was his wife and she had a licence. Dickie spoke briefly to the woman. She seemed cooperative and coherent, but he didn't have time to confirm her driving status. Dickie told her to drive and raced to the Milton Police Station to brief staff and coordinate a possible armed incident. He didn't give the encounter another thought. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, 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 I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing that's iffy in there. That on. sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Newsable, we go inside the courtroom where Erin Patterson pleaded not guilty to murder charges related to that infamous Beef Wellington lunch. Plus, why it's a good time to be a first home buyer and the diss battle between Kendrick Lamar and Drake. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Sometime after midnight, Lily and Gordon arrived back at the Bridge Tavern in Kaitankata and kept drinking. Lily told one of the punters he had already consumed two crates of beer that evening, but the punter said he looked all right and not drunk. Another patron said Gordon seemed fine too and nothing was amiss between them when he left about 12.30am. When Jason Lily arrived home around 3am on Sunday, he was covered in blood. His partner Kelly wasn't home, so he tried to call her at a friend's place he thought she might be staying at, but no one answered. Lily then took off his black Levi's, blue fisherman's neck jersey and green army shirt, shoved them in the washing machine and scrubbed himself down in the shower for more than half an hour. He then mopped up any blood in the house before making himself a hot drink, eating some chocolate and going to bed. About 9.30 the next morning, Lily finally reached Kelly by phone and said he had done something really serious the night before. He said he would tell her more when she got home. Kelly later told police, he said if it went past my mouth, he was really gonna bash me. About midday, Kelly arrived home and confronted Lily. I killed Linda last night, he said. Lily recounted meeting Gordon and their short pub crawl culminating at the Bridge Tavern in Kaitankata after midnight. He claimed Gordon had given him some Valium and blood test results would later suggest they both had taken the drug. He was angry at Gordon for suggesting they go for a drive in the Kaitankata Hills for a romantic liaison. He told Kelly he thought he would play along and give her a hiding for flirting. Lily's story is heavily disputed by Gordon's friends and the police. No one knows exactly why he decided to take Gordon up to the Kaitankara dump. However, his semen was later found on her body, suggesting a sexual assault. What is not in dispute, according to Lily's own admission to Kelly, which she later relayed in court, 
was that he had picked up a wheel brace when he got out of the van, put it on the roof and told Gordon to come around to the front of the vehicle. He said he hit Gordon twice in the face and she fell to the ground. He then put an arm around her neck and choked her until she passed out. Lily said Gordon came too, seconds later, and asked him to take her to the hospital. No way, he said. You're fucked, before beating her repeatedly over the head with the wheel brace. He said to me that he just lost it, Kelly said to police two days later. He was just so frustrated. He said frustrations over the months and years started coming out. Lily may have been referring to being adopted in his years of being in and out of correctional facilities, although police files do not make that clear. He then dragged Gordon off the road and into the grassy clearing and left her in a fetal position. On the way home, he threw the wheel brace in the Clutha River. Though deeply shocked, Kelly knew Gordon's body would be found. She asked Lily what he was going to do. Lily said that he felt he had covered his tracks, but he wanted to go back to the site on Sunday night to move her body. On Sunday afternoon, some friends visited, and they all drove into Balclutha for fish and chips. Lily told the friends he had been out with Linda Gordon the previous evening, but that she left in a grey Holden with another man at the Bridge Tavern. When they got back from Balclutha, Lily asked one of the friends if he could borrow a car. What for? his mate asked. To move a body? Lily laughed, but it was too late. By then, Linda Gordon had been found, and police had sealed off the dump. That night, Kelly didn't sleep. Lily had told her he would get her if she told the police what had happened, as soon as he got out of prison after he had confessed what he had done. The next morning, Lily's main concern was his distinctive yellow Anglia van parked in his garage. There were traces of blood on it, so he borrowed his mother's car and went to Balclutha to buy petrol and cleaning products. When he got back, he cleaned the van. Lily then said he might go down to Kaitankara School, where police had set up the homicide investigation. He planned to tell them he had been with Gordon on the Saturday night, but she had left with another man in a grey Holden. It wasn't long before sightings of Lily's van raised police suspicions. Two young men had seen the vehicle at the dump at 2.45am on the morning Gordon died, and a neighbour heard Lily arrive home not long after that. Police examined the Anglia and quickly found smears of Gordon's blood on the driver's door and the accelerator pedal. There were also blood spots on the front passenger indicator light. Luminal testing would show partial bloody footprints through Lily's house, including the bath. Lily also showed signs of being in a fight. He had scratches on his right hand and a graze on his left elbow. On the Monday night and into Tuesday morning, Lily was interviewed extensively by detectives. During breaks, an officer would sit with him and Kelly in the interview room. That officer was Sergeant Alastair Dickey. Police statements show at 10.50pm on Monday, December the 20th, Dickey sat with Lily and Kelly during a break. At 11.10pm, after Kelly had left the room, Lily asked Dickie if he would get bail if he admitted the murder and asked which prison he would go to. After this, the confession came quickly. At 12.25am on Tuesday, when the couple re-entered the room after another break, 
Lily said in front of Dickie, Fuck it, I've wasted my mate's lady, I don't believe it. He admitted being under the influence of opium, valium and alcohol the night he was with Gordon. At 12.35am, less than 48 hours from when Gordon was killed, Jason Dwayne Lilly was arrested for the murder. I can't fucking remember a thing, he said as he was taken away. It's amazing how much drugs can change a person. Lily's attitude in his first days in custody showed his callous disregard for his victim. Twelve days after the murder, in a letter to a friend, he wrote that the town was not very upset about Gordon's death. He referred to her as his mate's dirty girl and pondered putting in a plea bargain to get the charges reduced to grievous bodily harm. In a letter to Kelly, he said he felt immense pressure building up in me. But I've got no other way of letting steam off other than violence, he would say. He wrote that he was confused and scared and hadn't learnt to say to those he loved that his needs needed to be met. Instead, he said, I overload my brain with alcohol and drugs, hoping to forget. Now look where it got me. Lily's actions traumatised Kelly, who repeatedly apologised to Gordon's family in the days following the murder. Her daughter also had to grow up knowing what her father had done. In November 1994, a jury found Lily guilty of raping and murdering Gordon and sentenced him to life imprisonment with a 15-year non-parole period. Lily didn't manage to stay out of trouble after he was released on parole in 2012 and was recalled to prison on two occasions, including in 2014. Two years later, Lily was killed after his motorcycle collided with two cars on State Highway 1 near Gore. For Linda's father, Ted Gordon, Lily's death was a relief after a long fight to try to keep him in prison. This is the best Christmas present I could ever have, he said at the time. He had watched his wife Brenda struggle in the aftermath of their daughter's death. She died of cancer in 2004. I honestly think it's the stress that killed her. She could never let it go, Ted said. Ted thinks of his beautiful daughter every day. His house in Owaka, south of Balclutha, is full of photos of Linda. And then there was the responsibility of raising Linda's two-year-old daughter. Both grandparents and then Ted's eldest daughter looked after her. She lost two mums, Ted said. There was Linda, and her grandma was her second mum. For Laura, now 31, the way in which her mother died stays with her although she is fiercely independent and doesn't consider herself a victim. Self-described as introverted and shut off from the world, she takes comfort in knowing that she's like her mum. I found a lot of closure in meeting mum's peers and being told, yes, I'm like her. Today, Kaitankata is barely comparable to the town where Linda Gordon died. It's a thriving, charming town of choice for many families who have built a safe and strong community. In 1993, local support was vital in capturing Lily quickly. But 30 years on, the events of that night still raise a quiet hostility among residents who just want to move on and forget what Kaitankara once was. Gordon's family and all those caught up in Jason Lily's violence don't have that luxury. 
Gordon's boyfriend at the time, John Rogel, who has since died, blamed himself for not staying with her or picking her up from the bridge tavern the night she was killed. In his anger, he and others also pointed the finger at Dickie. Gordon's friend Josie Harris believes Dickie should have taken Lily into custody on the night he stopped him in his yellow Anglia. She also believes police later downplayed Lily's history of violence. Harris says he was known to be violent towards women long before he happened upon Gordon. Dickie went on to become one of the most respected and accomplished policemen in South Otago's history, but that night still haunts him. Whatever he thought about Lily that night, he couldn't have taken a disqualified driver to a potentially dangerous armed incident. But he remembers the sickening moment he first heard about a yellow van being connected to Gordon's death. He immediately connected the man and the woman he had pulled over to the body found at the dump. Since then, he has thought about Linda Gordon often and agonised over whether he should blame himself for what happened to her. He has replayed his actions over and over again in his mind, trying to see if he could have done anything differently. He understands Gordon's friend's anger and he has always wanted to set the record straight about the difficult choice he faced that night. The hardest part was accepting that he probably never had a choice at all. Realistically, he said, I don't believe I could have prevented the final outcome. That was The One He Never Forgot on the long read from Stuff, written and read by Nadine Roberts and produced by Jen Black. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you follow the podcast, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Thanks for listening. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support.